how deeply I feel the need of God's help, would you pray with me? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, I come thankful for your living and powerful, fixed and inerrant word, thankful for the Spirit who will teach your word to us and open our hearts to it and apply it to our lives. Thankful for your love, for your glory, highest and best of all things. Thankful for your name. Thank you. Thank you that you're not indifferent to your name, but that you cherish it and preserve it and exalt it. For in your exalting your name, your love is poured out on your bride, your people. Because you have called us to exalt your name. And as we marvel and delight in and exalt your name, we are saved and you are supremely glorified. How sorry I am, Lord, for a world that you have created for your glory, but the vast majority of it spends most of its time ignoring your glory, pretending it doesn't exist, or for those who are confronted with it directly, finding words of hatred for it. How patient you are to let your glory be so dishonored for so long by so many. I pray, Father, that you would help us to ready ourselves for your coming by the way you give us to read carefully and deeply, Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Help us to see what it really means to say, come, Lord Jesus, come and establish the name of God and repair in our hearts the esteem we should have for the unimpeachable glory of God that we so easily overlook or forget or diminish. Be supremely glorified, O God, through the way we love and pray for Christ's coming and do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us now to see the glory of God in the names of Christ and yearn with love and desire and ache for Christ to come such that in truth we say, come Lord Jesus. Instruct us now, instruct the children as they're ministered to in the little landing and instruct those who are watching by live stream or by recording later. Thank you so much for the way the word of God runs on and triumphs, never failing at the purposes for which you intended. It's a happy task then to take up this triumphant endeavor to proclaim your word knowing it cannot fail. I pray this in Jesus present and coming name. Amen. The Bible is full of promises, isn't it, that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. It's full of promises that he reigns in heaven and he will reign on earth, that he will return bodily. Matthew 24 records Jesus himself saying immediately after the tribulation in those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken Then will appear in heaven the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And he will send out his angels in loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Nothing makes sense in the Christian life unless you believe Jesus is actually coming back. But if you actually believe Jesus is coming back, then not only does everything in the Bible make sense, but your whole life makes sense and gains new meaning. 
In fact, now you can reorient your whole life around the simple, glorious truth that you're going to see face to face the King of glory when he returns. Praise his holy name. He's coming back, and he's coming back for you if you're trusting in him. Paul said it this way in 2 Thessalonians 1, Since indeed God considers it just to repay the affliction of those who have afflicted you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So Paul says it isn't just to create a smoldering heap of burning flesh that God comes. He's not just going to destroy his enemies. He's coming back to say, where's my church? Where's my bride? I want her to marvel at me. I'm here for her. I I say often, and I can't help it in this passage, Doug Wilson, a Bible teacher from Utah, says the whole Bible is summed up in six words. Slay the dragon, get the girl. It's true. It's right here in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10, and also here in Revelation 19. Christ comes to be marveled at by his bride loved and adored by those who are saying, we are ready, come Lord Jesus. We're eager, come Lord Jesus. We we have so many blessings on this earth, but have you ever realized that surrounding your life with comforts and ease on this earth can have the unintended effect of causing you to say, come Lord Jesus, after a little bit. I have a few more things I'm hoping to enjoy. Is it hard for you to pray, come Lord Jesus? Is it hard for you to say, Lord Jesus, come and come now? Know this, that Mark chapter 10 reminds us that all the things that we give up in this life, he supplies to us a hundredfold in this life with persecutions and in the age to come. Every thought of marriage for a young man that he might offer before the Lord and say, I'll receive it if you give it. I'll rejoice if you withhold it. Seeing children grow and become adults. Seeing grandchildren. Seeing friends again. Enjoying travel. Experiencing new ministry vistas. The one who longs for the return of Jesus holds his or her hands out and says, Lord, I will receive those blessings should you tarry. Should you plan to stay away longer and come at an appointed time of your and the Father's determination, I'll receive those blessings. But if you come, I will say, come Lord Jesus and rejoice in your arrival, knowing that all of those blessings will be transformed and multiplied into heavenly versions of those same blessings. Children, grandchildren, friends, parents, spouses, extended family members, the church of Jesus Christ, all glorified in heaven and ready for an eternity of joy. Come, Lord Jesus, is the cry 
of believers around the world and throughout the history of the church because, in part, life is very, very hard for Christians throughout the world and throughout the history of the church. And it shall be that way until Christ returns. In fact, I don't doubt for a moment that life will get harder and harder for Christians in this country. We've kind of lived in, in what some call the Disneyland of the universe here. And, and it's been a quasi sort of veneer Christian around the American experience. And so we've thought ourselves rather blessed. Even some would say, I like our country and God especially likes our country, which isn't true. But the result has been that we can easily lose our yearning and our ache and our longing for Christ to return. And yet he says, I'm coming back. I'm going to destroy my enemies and I'm going to gather to myself the beauty, the holiness, the delight and joy, the intimacy of my church. In Revelation 19, we've already seen how heaven is rejoicing with great hallelujahs, four hallelujahs, and we sang them. We sang them in that fantastic song. We sang the hallelujahs that Revelation 19, 1 to 10 sings about as it celebrates the greatness of Christ's coming back and trampling upon his enemies. Babylon is fallen, and that creates joy and rejoicing in heaven. Now the climax of history in this age, Christ himself appears in verse 11. He comes, as it were, on a white horse, and we see, and my outline becomes, the four names that he's given in this passage. Did you notice as Tom was reading? There's four names God the Son, Jesus Christ the Lamb has in this passage. Four names. I want to look at each one of these four names, both to see how glorious his coming will be, and how I'm to marvel at the glory of his coming, and second, to see how I'm to prepare to say, come Lord Jesus. How can my heart say, come Lord Jesus? It, it learns to say, come Lord Jesus, when I see who he is by his four names. Let's, let's watch them unfold. Look with me to verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, John says, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is a picture of Christ on a white horse, a mighty charger, coming at the end of the age to make war against all his enemies. This is the final battle. The original Greek terms show us that this is the war, not a war, but the final war. And it's Christ who comes to judge in righteousness and to make this war. He's worthy to wage a just war because he's faithful and true. That's his name. He's worthy to come and do battle against the enemies because he has always kept his Father's will, being faithful. And he has never lied, but always spoken the truth. Because Christ has always kept his Father's will, and His promises to His Father and to us, because He always speaks the truth, for He is in fact Himself the truth, He is worthy and the only one worthy to wage war against the evil of the world. Satan, the dragon, the beast, the evil of the world, they function in lies and in false promises. Satan, the world, evil, and the flesh, they have no agenda other than to undo Christ's agenda. They have no plan 
or idea or alternative on their own. All they can do is pervert the goodness of Christ in the gospel. Satan is a fallen angel and he parades around as a powerful god of this world. The beast pretends to wield great financial power, but he lies. Satan is the father of lies, Jesus says. Over and over we are told that the very lies and promise-breaking nature of Satan and all who work with him is to be exposed at the very end, and Christians with an eye to see even today can look deep into the darkness of Satan and see it is completely empty, counterfeit, and vacuous. So Paul said to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, the coming of the lawless one... That's the Antichrist called the false prophet here in Revelation. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. That is, he does signs and wonders to lie about God and about reality. Verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Have you ever thought about the relationship in your heart between loving the truth and knowing how dark and deceptive and harmful are the lies all around you. Loving the truth are those eager for Christ to return, and they're the ones who can see with clear sight all the darkness that lurks around us. Christ speaks the truth because He is the truth. In Him is no secret or deception or lie or fudging the truth. He hides nothing from anyone. He twists no reality. He's got no secrets. He, he, he speaks plainly and openly. Therefore, He can be trusted wholly by believers around the world. And even unbelievers can take His word as gospel truth as a warning against their hardened unbelief. He is faithful and true. Therefore, He is worthy to wage war in the end of the age, against all that's evil. You can trust him. You can follow him. In fact, you dare not follow any other teacher, any other voice, any other error within the world or the world's history because he alone is faithful and true. That's his first name. When you're yearning for Christ to come back, you're saying, Lord, come back because it's so hard to find somebody to tell me the truth. The essence of sin is someone saying, lie to me, lie to me, lie to me. But Christ comes and speaks the truth fully and wholly. The second name is given. Harder to understand, but the reward of it is even more wonderful, if that could be imagined. Verse 12, John calls Jesus faithful and true in verse 11. And then he says in verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. What is this name that no one knows but himself? There's a clue in the fact that his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. We saw that back in Revelation 1. This is the glorious Christ. His eyes of fire means he sees and knows everything. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. He knows everything about everyone. At all places and at all times, that's what his eyes of fire means. He knows all things. No one hides anything from him. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. You don't have to look very far in the Old Testament to realize that that was a sign that there was something glorious and mysterious about God. And now God's Son, Jesus Christ, as as taught to us in the New Testament, that's higher and greater and more glorious than any of us can know. 
He doesn't reveal every name of himself to everybody to misuse and to use as a curse and to profane and trample upon. This is a name that according to Isaiah 62, he only reveals to his intimate ones. Listen to 62 Isaiah. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. These very words are being quoted by the Spirit to John in Revelation 19, 12. On his head are many diadems. He's the preferred, the chosen one, the elect of God, and all who are in him are the elect of God. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Do you remember when Jacob was wrestling God in Genesis 32? He wrestled with him and wrestled with him, and finally he said to the angel of God, what's your name? What did the angel respond? He didn't say anything. He didn't tell him. He, in fact, turned it on Jacob and renamed him Israel. Jesus says in Luke 10, this very same truth, no one but Christ knows God's name. Jesus' words are these, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Revelation 2 and 3, if you remember the church at Pergamum and the church at Philadelphia, they're both told that Christ is going to have an intimacy with his church, the church under persecution, where he will write on them the name of God and he will give to them a new name that only they will know. What this signifies is that the church of Jesus Christ, believers in this room and around the world, have an intimacy with God that no other person can have who does not know Christ as Savior. There's a speaking by His Spirit that's so plain in the New Testament. Paul says to the Galatians, keep in step with the Spirit, and I yearn for that in my life, and I yearn for it in your life as well, as a believer, that you would have such fellowship with the Lord that you would not only be reading the Bible, the record of His Word, inerrant and, and permanent and, never, and everlasting, but He would also be guiding you by his Holy Spirit, and you could say with Paul in Ephesians 3, I have been filled up to all the fullness of God. It's a sad thing to me that I find very commonly in America Christians who functionally act like the devil is really, really big and always bothering them and always active in their life and always talking to them and putting ideas in their head and the Holy Spirit is almost never, ever thought of or mentioned. That troubles me deeply. It's utterly out of step with the Bible. For what we find in the Bible is this sweet intimacy where Christ says just what the prophet Hosea says to Gomer, his wife, estranged wife. He takes her out into the garden in chapter 2, and it says he bought her back, and then he takes her to himself, and he holds her close, and he whispers to her in the ESV, it says, tenderly. But that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says he whispers to her sweet nothings. Sweet nothings. That's where we get the phrase sweet nothings out of Hosea 2. That's what Christ does with his church. That's the name that he gives the church. He gives names like cutesy and pumpkin to his church. I know how deeply we want this. Yes, we do. 
we will try to find this in 10,000 sins. But we want to hear our Savior talk to us in sweet nothings. So badly we can barely even articulate that prayer. He comes back as the one who the world cannot name because if they could name him, they could trample on that name and they won't be given that name to trample on. Only the church will have it. Oh, I hope you know him this way. I hope you trust him this way. I hope you can believe in him and draw near to him this way. I hope you delight in him this way, marveling at his coming, enjoying his presence by his Holy Spirit, having sweet communion with him in deep and intimate fellowship, knowing just at a, at a second's breath when you are fading out of step with him, and, and he gently, with just a breath of his voice, brings you back near Oh, the intimacy with Christ that the Bible holds out is so precious and yet so rarely experienced and so fully misunderstood and yet so very precious. The third name he's given is explicit. Look at verse 13, bracing even. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Why does the word of God be the name that Christ is called while he's on the riding on the horse ready to make war, resulting in a robe dipped in blood? From his mouth, verse 15, comes a sharp sword, that's the word, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Do you see the picture? Unbelievers are grapes. He's trampling the grapes and they splatter on him. And he's doing it by his word, which comes out of his mouth like a sword. Stand fast, unbelieving world. Stand fast, for you are about to be trampled like a grape. Repent of your sin, wickedness of every sort and kind. Repent of it, lest you be trampled under the foot of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory and in righteousness. Do you deserve it? You know you do. That's why you hide. That's why you're not even daring go near a church, or daring open a Bible, or even daring use the name of Jesus in public. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. You know where this comes from. This is Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Eden in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Who is this? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like his who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. And by the word of his mouth, the reigning Christ, he will capture, he will throw into fire, he will slay the beast, the false prophet, and all those who were with them who believed in their falsehoods. His name is the word of God. The word of God is the power by which he wages war. His faithful, true name is his right His cause is to win to himself in intimacy and in sweet 
communion, his church, and the power by which he will wage war is the sharp sword of the word of God that comes out of his mouth. Christ himself is the word. He upholds the world by the word of his power. He was there and created the world before anything existed with the Father and the Spirit. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the logos, I am the word in John chapter 1. And now he comes with the power of the word of God and he destroys all his enemies. The word of God is what destroys sin in your life. The word of God is what awakens and creates faith in your life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Christ will come in power and on the last day from the seat on his saddle on his white charger. He will proclaim his word and that will bring about the end of all evil. Fill your mind every day with the Word of God. Many of us are reading through the Bible here at The Landing, the faith family. Read through something of God's Word every single day. Let, let your intimacy that you enjoy in His previous name, the name that only His church knows, lead you to search His Word and to hear His voice through His Word. Come to know it well. Read something from God's Word every single day, if not morning and evening, even and the final name that's given to him is the name maybe known best of all from the book of Revelation, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This means he's absolutely, perfectly, and supremely sovereign over all rulers and lords. None can stay his hand. None can distract, derail, or diminish his plans. He sits in the heavens and does all that he pleases. Christ is sovereign and undefeatable. No beast, no anti-church, no army of demons, no dragon, no false prophet can possibly hope to conquer or even hinder the Lord Jesus Christ in all his power. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's God Almighty over Israel, but over all the nations. He is the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, to possess all rights to reign over all reality. The ultimate weapon that kings of this world have is death. All they can do is kill you. He has conquered death, and therefore no king has any power whatsoever over King Jesus. He rules as king not only over creation, but he rules as king over all reality. He has ruled in times past. He rules today, and he will rule forever. And he does so for the sake and the well-being of his church. Paul says this plainly in Ephesians 1.20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The reign of Christ is for the well-being of his church. The one sitting on the horse comes back to make war to gather his bride to himself. And this is, in fact, the unswerving end of all history in this age. So no wonder all of heaven cries hallelujah when they see Christ emerging from heaven on a horse, a great white charger, and he has a robe on his 
uh, on his person, and his name is faithful and true. His name is even unknown, and we dare not even try to take it to our lips. His name is the Word of God, and his name is King of kings and Lord of lords. They bow down in joyful worship. We bow down in joyful worship. And you and I could stop right here, and we could say, this is enough. This is all I can absorb. Yes, I do want you to come back, Lord Jesus. Yes, I do trust that every blessing I'll miss on earth, I'll have a hundredfold in heaven And yes, I do want you to destroy all your enemies. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Then the action happens. Look at verses 17 through 21. I call this in my outline the anti-feast. Oh my. An angel, probably a really powerful angel standing in the sun, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds, buzzards and vultures that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. Get ready, birds, you're about to eat. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the the greedy structure of buying and selling, the beast, and the kings of the earth who bought and sold and gained authority and prominence in the beast. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered, human beings and demons we know from previous in Revelation, gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So Christ is there, and he has an entire heavenly army. We'll see in a moment that heavenly army is made up of both angels and saints, humans and angels. And, and, if, and if, you're, if you're not careful, you might say, oh man, there's going to be a clash like Lord of the Rings or something. But that's not what happens. Don't fall into that trap. That's not what happens. It's not at all what happens. Look carefully. Verse 20, and the beast was captured. With it, the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. It's just over in an instant. They're captured and they're tossed into the lake of fire. There's almost no battle. Verse 21, and the rest, all the rest of the army that were gathering in war against Christ and the rest were slain by the sword, the word that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, I call this the anti-feast because you can see how it's a parody of the great supper of the marriage feast of the Lamb, where his bride comes and all the delicacies of heaven are provided for. And there is the uh, glory of Christ and the glory of the bride we who trust in Christ and all the heavenly beings cheering and the delightful, colorful, beautiful banquet that's shared celebrating the marriage of Christ and his church. That's the beautiful picture we get in the first part of Revelation 19. And then here's the parody of it. Here's the dark counterfeit. Birds, vultures, and buzzards are hovering over all the people who gave themselves to the beast to the dragon and to the false prophet and to a life of sin, rejecting and hating Christ all the way 
and they will be the feast. So one of the most sober ways to lay the truth of reality out in front of your heart is to say, which meal will I attend? Will I be the bride and the guest of honor enjoying the delights of heaven forever with Christ by faith? Or will I be on the menu? There isn't a stark, bracing, stunning, overwhelming, painful picture I can think of worse than this one to describe what it's like to reject Christ and pursue a life of sin. Notice how the battle almost doesn't even exist. The beast is captured, the false prophet, and he are thrown into the lake of fire by Christ, and the rest are slain by the sword that comes from his mouth. And he's still sitting on the horse, according to verse 21. Swiftness is the point. Evil is nothing for Christ to defeat. This is not a battle of two equal powers. There's no doubt of the outcome. His mouth speaks the word and an entire army are captured, cooked, and slain. They've all immediately become birdseed. The beast, the false prophet, cast alive into the lake of fire, burn and cook forever. No battle, no struggle, no conflict, no question. Christ wins instantly. But this is exactly what Paul said would happen. No surprise. Remember 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. He's sitting on the horse and he breathes. Bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. It's like they see him coming and they all run for the lake of fire. In the end, there is no battle. Don't ever picture Christ struggling to win his bride and defeat evil by going into the battle. He died on the cross at Calvary, and there was his battle. There's where the end was determined. We live in the absolute certainty that King Jesus is Lord of Lords, and he will win in all things, not just when we watch the outcome of Revelation 19, but in our hearts by faith right now we know it. So why the horse? (laughs) I have a big note in my notes. So why the horse? What do you need a horse for? And I don't know if I have an answer, but here's my attempt at my answer for why the horse. It's the beginning of my reflections. Maybe you can add to these reflections or the Spirit will teach me something more through His Word. I wrote in my notes, and I'm sharing with you now, this glorious image that I have in my mind of Christ riding on a donkey and saying, come follow me. I'm going to die on a cross. So he says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So get on your donkey, ride through your Jerusalem, And know that if he calls you to die for his gospel and his name, blessed are you, for so the prophets were treated before you. So that he can say, it's the end, I'm on my horse, isn't she a beauty? And I've got one for you too. 
Get on your white horse and ride with me, says the reigning Christ. I get that from verse 14. Here, look at it carefully. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, that's what priests wear, that's what forgiven priests wear, the royal priesthood, white and pure, cleansed by his blood. We know that from the rest of Revelation. We're following him on white horses. You see, you're there at the final battle as well, but, but you're not getting off your horse. You're just there watching him do the breathing and the appearing and everybody else is wiped out. You get a front row seat as you are with him, reigning with him, rejoicing with him, riding with him, worshiping him, along with the angels in the triumphant battle, as it were, at the very end of time. We who are in Christ are riding on the white horse with him. Ride on the donkey now. Take up your cross and follow him now. That you can ride on the white charger that he has appointed for you then. Ride with him looks like this. This is what you do to know you're ready to say, come Lord Jesus at any moment. First, you follow him and obey him. That's what the riding on the white horses means. He has a white horse, you ride on a white horse. If he got baptized, you get baptized. If he goes out into the world to proclaim the gospel, you follow him. Go out in the world and proclaim the gospel. If If he worships the Father, you worship the Father. If he was filled by the Spirit, you be filled by the Spirit. If he rejects sin, you reject sin. If he stands for truth, you stand for truth. Follow him close. He's faithful and true. He can be followed. In fact, he's the only one safe to follow. He's also got the unknown name. Stay close enough so that over his shoulder you can hear whispers from him. Keep the nose of your horse near the hind of his so that you can hear his very voice and see the expressions on his face even as you ride that close. You can see what his eyes are looking at. You can hear what his tone of his voice is. You can see the posture as he rides. Ride so close that you have complete communion and fellowship with the Lord every day until he returns. And his return will be no sorrow but only sweet intimacy. He also says, I'm the Word of God. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Read it, something of it every day, but even more than that, be bold to share it. Satan is not afraid of the phone numbers you know. He's not afraid of the people that you know. He's not afraid of the theology books you've read. He's not afraid of the songs you know. He's afraid of the Bible you know. What do you know of the Bible in your heart? The word of God is the sword that slays him. Finally, he's king of kings and lord of lords, and his eyes are like flaming fire, so he knows everything and he reigns over everything. Bow before him and receive his reign. Don't chafe under it. Don't find excuses to reject it. Don't minimize it, diminish it, or tell anyone that he's doing that. In fact, his reign is universal, supreme, glorious. It's how we know that all his promises will come to pass, for he has the power to thwart all his enemies, and to gather his bride to himself. Let's pray. So, King of kings, word of God, unknown name and faithful and true, Lord, we love you for all these things. We love you for showing us your names and your glory in Revelation 19. We love you for causing us to marvel at you and eagerly await your arrival. We love you for the joy that we have in serving you. Now, even though it's donkey riding, we love you for calling us. And we'll happily take up our cross in these very short days until you return when we saddle up with you on the white charger appointed for us. Thank you so much for this passage. Thank you so much for the bracing 
depth of it. Thank you so much for the sweet intimacy of it. Give us hearts of faith to say, yes, Lord. We want to be the bride for whom you, and, and to whom you come and for whom you battle. And thank you that the battle is so short. Thank you that you're so strong and that evil is so weak. We fear it not. We fear only you. And we will go out with you, walking near to you, riding close to you, even today, even into the rest of this summer, into the rest of our lives. Guard us from making any decision that causes us to grow cold toward you. Forbid it that we would ever lose our zeal for the glory of God in Christ, both in these days and in the days of his arrival. In Christ's precious name, I pray. Amen.